Welcome to Vital Talks Listen, the podcast accompaniment to Vital Strategies speaker series on public health. I'm Sandy Mullen, and I'm joined by my intrepid co-host, Steve Hamill, the Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication here at Vital Strategies. We are a global health organization that is seeking to reimagine public health toward a world where everyone is protected by an equitable and effective public health system. This year on Vital Talks, we've been featuring people who are daring to reimagine and do public health differently, and I'm very excited about today's episode. If you would like to learn how innovators are tackling the world's biggest health problems, subscribe to us on any of the podcast services to follow the stories that are changing our world. We're also releasing bonus episodes that take a close look at specific areas within our global public health portfolio on issues like gender equity, overdose prevention, and so much more. We are looking for seasoned sponsors. Please help us to support our Vital Talk series. If you're an organization or individual interested in supporting thoughtful conversations about advances in public health, please drop us a line at vitaltalks at vitalstrategies.org to learn more about sponsorship. I'm very excited about today's episode where you interview two amazing women, one of whom I've known for many years, whose name is Lily Farhang, and she is the co-leader of Human Impact Partners, a social justice and public health organization based in Oakland, California, and Hattie, who is a member of a sex worker collaborative that's called Answer Detroit. And I think that in this discussion, I'm hoping that we can weave together the really poignant things each of these women had to say about power and influence and the way in which these there are so many intersectional parts of the work that we do and how it relates to our responsibility in, in public health and, uh, and just so many insights from, from both of them. These were fantastic conversations, and I'm really excited for our listeners to listen in. So let's listen to Lily and to Hattie, and then we'll talk about them. Lily Farhang, co-director of Human Impact Partners. Welcome, Lily, to Vital Talks. Can you tell me a little bit more about Human Impact Partners? How do you define its mission? Yeah, well, Human Impact Partners, or we go by HIP, <laughs> um, we're a national public health nonprofit, and our mission is to really transform the field of public health to center equity and to build what we call collective power with social justice movements. And what that means in practice is that we're often working with grassroots community organizers, what we call community power building organizations on different campaigns that they might be running to win policy change to improve people's material conditions. So like um, campaigns that would improve social conditions, economic conditions, environmental conditions in communities. And our work with them is often like direct advocacy and lobbying um, through the use of data and kind of expertise that the public health community has. We also try to mobilize public health practitioners to like turn out and support those campaigns. Really, the idea is there's all this like latent under-leveraged power of public health that is not present in other social movement spaces around housing and economic justice and climate justice or community safety. So 
that's like a lot of our work around building collective power with social justice movements. And then we have this whole other body of work with governmental public health, where we're trying to transform their internal policies and practices and systems to center health and racial equity and to work with communities in different ways. So that's a little bit about HIP and our mission. That intersects with so many of the themes we've been talking about this year in Vital Talks. And I've I've heard you say that public health needs to update its analysis of public health problems and that if we don't incorporate notions of power and rebalancing or addressing power, that the field of public health will continue to make progress that's too slow or too inadequate or too much reach. Is that correct? Or, or can you explain yeah. that? Yeah, 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 yes. Um, This is definitely like a place where I think HIP is trying to push the envelope with the field. And I think, I mean, you know, my hot take (laughs) is that the field as a whole really largely doesn't think about, doesn't understand, doesn't meaningfully use or address power in its efforts to address health inequities. So we're like, we're great at talking about health equity, health inequities, health disparities. We're even better, you know, we're getting better at talking about racism and these other like systems of um, advantage and oppression. But like, we don't take it another level. (laughs) We talk about personal empowerment of individuals around like behavior change, which is great and important, but it's not close to understanding how power works to impede social change. Like the kinds of policy change that we're talking about, the kinds of systems change we're talking about around like carceral systems or education systems, the reason that they're set up the way that they are, we think, are because of power. (laughs) Um, And so if we don't, and and power imbalances and who kind of controls and leverages those systems and who doesn't. And so if we don't have a strategy to think about those, um, we're never really going to get to the underlying reasons that we keep reproducing inequitable conditions and outcomes across mm-hmm. all these systems. And so, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I, I, I mean, this whole conversation is reminding me a bit of Ed Yong's article in The Atlantic from last year that made a splash. It was called How Public Health Took Part in Its Own Downfall. It came kind of at this dark moment in COVID where people realized that our systems are not up to the task of protecting people, much less equitably, but sort of the main premise for those who, of, of our audience who haven't yeah. read it is that there was this transition from a movement that you're talking about where people, public health professionals were working with communities to do things like improve sanitation and housing. And then there came this moment where public health was kind of professionalized quote yeah. unquote, into delivering services like vaccination and collecting and analyzing data. You know, it sounds like you're sort of a, a public health originalist on some level. You're like, let's get back to community power than proving those sort of positions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my thinking is that social change happens through organized social movements, right? It's not just like an accident (laughs) that, you know, we have better civil rights laws. Like Mm -hmm. it's, I would say throughout history, major gains in social, environmental, political conditions have resulted from intentional, sustained efforts of grassroots movements, advocacy movements. And I think, um, Ed Young's piece, which is fabulous and everyone should read it, who kind of cares about the future of public health, is aligned around this idea that we're now really disconnected from social movements and like professionalization of the field um, has in some ways, you know, it's been good in some ways, but in other ways, it's it's really hamstrung our ability to think about 
um, what it means to make change. And so like we often say, or what we try to do is we break the idea of power down into its component parts. We say that power is about decisions that are made. Power is about networks and relationships that set agendas. And power is about narratives. And I think that what we see kind of right now is that um, public health, it really, really is narrowly thinking about, maybe it's thinking about how decisions get made, but it's not really thinking about using its voice, its data, its energy, its resources to reset narratives, to build relationships. Um, And I would say that, you know, the right (laughs) is doing that in an incredibly effective way that we see like in the backlash to COVID, you know, we just thought, okay, if we just, you know, get the data out there, people are going to make informed decisions. If we just get that vaccination clinic set up where, you know, people just go and get vaccinated, but actually all of those are super contested spaces and showing up in kind of an apolitical way, um, or like a, this is our evidence kind of way is, I think it's naive. I mean, I think that it, Mm -hmm. it doesn't acknowledge that there's like factions of our society that actually want to, you know, uh, you know, drown the administrative state down a bathtub. And so that's public health. Like they're actually talking about public health. And so we have to just think about, um, how to play on that terrain, you know, how to engage in that kind of terrain. And I think that public health has a lot to learn from other social movements that kind of think in a much more complex way about how Mm -hmm. social change happens. Lily, I have a follow-up question about this notion of the professionalization of the field of public health and its reliance on data and epidemiology, which are clearly critical functions. Is there a remit for re-examining how we look at data in light of COVID and the inequities? Do we have to, to think differently about our relationship with data and surveillance uh, as we move forward as a field? Yeah, I mean, yes. <laughs> Uh, And the main reason for that is because I don't think that public health practitioners are thinking about what they want to do with the data, right? So, you know, there's all this information that exists already that shows that disparities exist, that show why disparities exist, but there's a real disconnect between kind of putting information out there and then using it to shift social, economic, environmental, political conditions that create health and health inequities. And so I I would say that a lot of the data that is put out there is meant to be more descriptive and like illustrative, but it's actually not action oriented. It's not, uh, it often, like if you read a journal article, it doesn't often end with like, and these are the three policy solutions that we need (laughs) to actually reverse this trend um, or fix this problem. And so I would be really curious in your subsequent, you know, interviews with folks who are experts in data and equity and data is like, what needs to shift in the field to um, have people embody a more advocacy oriented. It doesn't mean you need to let go of impartiality. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that like you need to let go of objectivity, but once you show something, I think the natural consequence is what do you do about it? And I would Mm -hmm. like for, you know, experts to be thinking more about that and kind of how are they positioning people 
um, to take action with the data right. that they're putting out there. Right. It's not enough to measure. Like we've proven this giant problem exists yeah. and now it's up for other forces to spring into action. Yeah. My last thought, let me just, sorry. And I have one other thought. Don't hate me. My one other thought is that I think a lot of people like, you know, a lot of public health people when they're putting reports together, you know, like a governmental agency, they're putting a report together. They are often focused on just showing that inequities exist, but not why. So for example, if you put out a report that says, you know, black folks are suffering, you know, at twice or three times the rate of this thing than white folks, a casual reader will not necessarily understand why that is. And their takeaway may be um, kind of reaffirming and perpetuating a lot of, you know, negative thinking about black folks behavior, for example. And so what we want to do is be able to tell this story, I think, of why those inequities came to be in the first place because of redlining, you know, because of discrimination in workplaces, because of whatever the set, you know, crappy schools, whatever the set of conditions are. So it's not enough to just show that inequities exist in the data, but also explaining why they exist is kind of important to pointing towards solutions. Well, I'm curious. I mean, one of the things about working in this field, and I wasn't trained in this field, but it's full of the most committed, earnest people that totally. one could possibly imagine. <laughs> but they, when you get your MPH, you're not taught about social movements or how to organize people, or you're not, like you said, you've taught this like a little bit more clinical approach, you know, how to create, you know, a, a, a work plan. And I'm curious, how's it going? You know, how's human impact partners filling the gap? You know, can you share like maybe a success story about, you know, kind of leveling up some, either some of your partners in this kind of quest to get political yeah, power, absolutely. Political social power? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the biggest change that we're seeing is that a lot of public health departments that we work with are realizing that community engagement, like that's what they, you know, that's their way. And I will say this um, kind of connects to the answer Detroit um, clip that I listened to. But I think a lot of public health departments have thought, okay, you know, we'll outreach to communities, we'll talk to them, we'll do good community engagement, and kind of call it a day, you know, we'll, we'll take their input, we'll use it, we'll make some changes to how we do our business. And I will say, I think, more and more, some local health departments and their associations are talking much more explicitly about, no, we don't actually want to just do community engagement. We want to share power with communities. We want to go to where they're at, and we want them to have a much larger stake in the decisions that we're making and influence in the decisions we're making. And so what we're seeing, and you know, I don't want to blow up any health department spot, but what I'll just say is that there's health departments in New York and Chicago, um, in Southern California who are kind of getting trained up in what it means to analyze power and how to work with community power building organizations that organize people who are most impacted by a lot of the issues that we care about. And they're really kind of shifting what the beginning of a relationship looks like. So it's not just like, oh, let me get up with this community group and kind of get their input and priorities and stick it in my community health assessments. It's much more like, actually, let me get with this community group, learn about them, understand what their needs are, apologize for harm we might have caused in the past, 
starts to build trust, starts to sort of tend to the relationship that is actually super frayed between governmental public health and a lot of communities. Um, and kind of start from that point of like deep relationship building and kind of repairing historical harms and mistrust, because actually doing that kind of work like sets a lot of health departments up into a position of success when they're, for example, facing a backlash around COVID because there's groups that will go to bat for them um, when their, you know, their strategies and power is being contested in the public sphere. So anyway, I will just say that a lot of what I'm seeing is much more openness. And I think COVID is what triggered a lot of this. Mm -hmm. It's like the backlash to public health has Mm -hmm. made, I think, a lot of those earnest, honest, values-driven professionals to think like, all right, y'all, we need a strategy. We got to figure out how to deal (laughs) with this pushback. And it starts with, kind of being in alliance with groups who understand power and working together mm-hmm. in a different kind of way. I'm glad you brought up Hetty and answered Detroit and we shared the clip yeah. with you to listen earlier. I was wondering, you know, they're doing this important harm reduction work and I don't even know if they think or they care to label themselves as a public health group, even though they're doing yeah. tremendous work. I'm curious about your reaction to their approach and how it kind of built, fits within your thesis about the need for community power. Yeah, I mean, I loved everything about that. Um, And I look forward someday, hopefully, to meeting Hattie and answer Detroit. But I think what they talked about that really appealed to me um, was this idea of like bringing people together who have a people who are kind of impacted by different systems of advantage and oppression, um, who have a shared identity, bringing them together and not just like viewing them as these like vulnerable people who've been harmed, but actually kind of as a collective who knows what they need, they know the solutions they want, they know the conditions they're in, and actually they have the answers. Um, and so, you know, it, it like harkens back to this idea, like that people closest to the problem are closest to the solutions. And I think what Hattie really highlighted in that piece is that they're figuring out what they need. Um, and what they want <laughs> is, you know, kind of institutions of public health to ask them what they want and then to act on, um, to respect their sovereignty and autonomy, to use their language, and to kind of um, trust that they know what they need for themselves and then kind of share decision-making power and figure out um, like how to support what those needs are. So that is like exactly what I'm in a lot of ways talking about around institutions of public health, thinking really differently about what it means to be in relationship with people who are most impacted by all of these systems. Um, and sort of ultimately recognizing like it's not going to always be a smooth relationship, right? There's mm-hmm. always going to be some like hard stuff there, but that is how you know you're making progress. If you're always like in a comfort zone in public health, then it probably means that you're not actually challenging kind of the conditions that are creating inequities in a really meaningful way. And so I think, um, so listening to Hattie was, it was really uplifting for me. Um, and it made me think like, okay, these are the kinds of groups that public health needs to be working with. It doesn't matter if they don't think of themselves as public health. And hopefully, you know, if you're working in public health and you're being challenged, that means that you've opened the door to sharing power, right? And and in a one-way relationship, you know, where one person has all the power, then the other people have a take it or leave it option. And sometimes they'll leave it, right? Yeah, that's right. I don't want to do your, you know, safe sex program program because um, I would design it differently it doesn't fit but they'll walk away but it, that's know, right it's sharing power you have to navigate that tension you may be having options on the table that you as a public health professional you know are uncomfortable with yeah 
Yeah. I mean, health departments have a ton of positional, relational decision-making and resource power that they can shift and share with um, the, those kinds of organizations. Um, and I think just echoing your point. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you a little bit uh, as a wrap up about global work, yeah. but before that, just, I mean, you've already described a lot about how COVID sort of showed public health has a lot of work to do uh, to be more equitable and effective and that you're really engaged deeply in this work on multiple levels. But if you could wave a wand and kind of help departments of health or help government better respond to this moment, you know, what would it look like? Uh, what would a city or, or state health department look like? What would they be doing in the future that they're not doing now? Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to answer that question without sort of thinking of governmental public health as actually part of like what we need for a functioning society. So, so governmental public health um, sits within government. We need a functioning government um, mm-hmm. because in order to have a functioning democracy, we kind of need functioning government. And so, and we want governmental public health to kind of be a beachhead for what a functioning government and a functioning democracy actually looks like. And since our lane at HIP is public health, we see our role as working with governmental public health to embody like a whole set of different values. And so to me, if I was going to wave a wand, first, it's like people would understand, people who work within governmental public health would actually understand that like their function is to make democracy work. It's not just like a vaccination clinic, but it's every one of those kind of actions is part of demonstrating how democracy works. Um, And so you know, if I waved my magic wand, I would want these institutions to be more inclusive, to be more transparent, to be more responsible, to be more accountable. Um, And so it's sort of less about workforce development and training and money. And it's more about like the ethos of what that agency is meant to embody in our society writ large. So, you know, every time I think uh, government agencies sort of doesn't show its best self kind of in public, it chips away. And I think what, you know, people and communities expect from us. And so, you know, I want it to sort of be more values driven because then I think it drives how decisions get made in a really different way. Um, So that's a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I love that your answer is so true to your mission that, you know, I've sort of asked this narrow question and you'd exploded it to match your values, which are that, you know, public health has to um, touch across all of these roots of power, democratization, you know, who who's at the who's at the decision making table, you know, what's the ultimate responsibility of government is to show up for its citizens yeah. and to be responsible for that. I love that. Let me also, ju- I'll do this one thing and don't get mad at me. I will say that we have like a whole toolkit that people can check out online called healthequityguide.org, which actually does get into the operational changes that we want to see in governmental public health. It's like a whole, has a set of strategic practices around how to restructure internal work, cross-government work, community work, um, and to sort of embody those values. So just to say, I don't go to the like operational because I think in some ways it's like super hard to digest in this format, but people should go online, check it out, and they can kind of see what we're talking about um, in terms of changes, you know, that they can make to their institutions to really rise 
to the challenge that we're talking about. I love that you're plugging your resources. That's great. That's what we want from people who listen to this is to is to get thirsty to, to learn more. So what about the global situation? I know you're here in the U.S. And how would that, you know, and that you're operating from a limited set of experiences and knowledge, but would you like yeah. to reflect on the scene at large? Yeah, I think in, this is a place where I think we here in the U.S. actually have a lot to learn from um, folks that are situated in other places. And so I think that, um, you know, my parents are immigrants to the U.S. from Iran. I think there's a way in which like their lived experience is much more fluid and comfortable talking about issues of power um, and hierarchy and why they exist. And I think that's true in a lot of other countries. And so this is almost a, there's almost a way in which we have very little to offer others. You know, HIP has very little to offer others internationally about our perspective. But I think we have so much to learn from people who are in places that are a lot less shy, kind of talking about politics and power and how that manifests in um, public health practice. And so there's a way in which our, you know, your international listeners, like what I would love to know from them is sort of like, where are their public health institutions in these, around these ideas? Like to, you know, how have they been able to internalize kind of discussions, analysis, thinking strategies around power to shift how they do their public health practice. Um, I'm sort of curious how much these resonate. There's some assumptions in what I'm saying, but that is kind of what my experience is like around just, you know, family members who've come here um, mm-hmm. and others. So, yeah. They also, I also, I mean, as I'm, I'm American, grew up here, and my one of my experiences is that you realize leaving the U.S. that most other countries in the world, people believe that it's the province and the responsibility of government to provide health care. Yeah, and you, the totally. US is an outlier there that that totally. they think, you know that that we've divorced the government of this notion that that that's an obligation, and so people yeah. have a different relationship to public health because they feel like it's a job of government. And here we've sort of you know said, oh, that's not something that's necessarily you know a governmental thing. It's a privacy. Yeah, thing. yeah, one hundred percent. I agree. Lily Farhang, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have you on Vital Talks, and I hope all of our listeners go check out humanimpact.org. And I understand there's a a special URL just for the equity toolkit. What is that? Healthequityguide.org. Healthequityguide.org. Thanks again, Lily. Awesome. Thank you. Take care, Steve. My name is Hattie. I am a sex worker, full service sex worker, and an organizer with the uh, Answer Detroit, which is a network of sex workers to excite revolution here in Detroit, Michigan. Patty, welcome to Vital Talks Podcast. We're really happy to have you. So Answer Detroit, as you said, supports its members in harm reduction and in connecting to health, housing, legal resources, and you know, letting members define their own way forward and including towards decriminalizing sex work. Can you start by sharing how does ANSWER improve the health and well-being of sex workers? What does that look like? Yeah, so we do a number of things. We we got together originally as a just a group of sex workers in the metro area um, seeking community and, um, and support uh, 
from each other and have grown um, over the years into a kind of network of uh, a mutual aid network. Um, it was a big project. We did a mutual aid project that is ongoing, but was really, really um, vital during the during the pandemic and the, the lockdown times of 2020. And we also do a lot of political education, as you mentioned, around um, destigmatization of our work and, and decriminalization of sex work. We support each other is, uh, you know, from the ground up sort of as our, as our way of, of doing things. So recognizing that when we um, have each other's backs, whether it's from, you know, a small thing like, you know, supporting each other to access resources or to get transport to a doctor's appointment or to, you know, fill in small gaps of you know, uh, mutual aid to help someone support pay their phone bill, um, that these little things build up to um, give each other more power and more autonomy when it comes to bigger impact issues that we're addressing all together as, as in community. And can you help us paint, paint a picture of what that looks like? Can you share a story of something you're proud that Answer did and an impact that they had on someone's mm. life? Yeah, well, I would say I'm really proud of, In uh, I don't know if it's one specific person, but something that as we have built our team, we have an outreach team. So we have a group of uh, four or five folks who now are working for Answer, doing street-based outreach, providing um, harm reduction resources, uh, whether that's, you know, safe sex kits, safe drug use kits, uh, you know, warm pair of socks, a warm meal. Um, we have a, a outreach team that primarily, well, actually all of the, I think, yeah, all of the members were, um, recipients of the mutual aid, a project that we, when we first launched it. Um, and so now we've been able to bring on, um, five outreach team members and paid positions and um, yeah, and train them and support them and in what they were already doing in, in a slightly more formalized way, but still in a very, um, like I said, organic and community-based uh, way. So I'm proud of them. And I think they're, they're, they should be very proud of their work and our work collectively has been really impactful in the, in the greater community. Yeah, that's, I mean, and can you share, we know that communities, the health of different communities and different over intersecting communities are, are, are interlinked. Do you want to share a little bit about how uh, Answers Work not only improves the, the lives and well-being of sex workers, but positively impacts the health of the larger community? How do you see that in action? Yeah, well, we know when we better the conditions for folks who are most marginalized in our community, that is actually also going to support all uh, and benefit all sex workers. And then even more broadly beyond the sex working community, um, as we do our outreach and other programs, we obviously recognize that sex workers are just people right? And we have intersectional um, identities within ourselves. So, you know, sex workers are also sometimes mothers, um, aunties, grandmothers, sisters, brothers, um, siblings, and, and community members who work potentially other jobs. And so all of these intersecting factors, um, when we are supporting folks in, you know, again, coming back to this, like building up their power, their autonomy and access and choice within community, all of those, when we give folks those, um, those options, we, and empower people, it is going to be benefiting the, the community in all the roles that we hold. And 
I want to learn a little bit from you about mutual aid, your experience of how it comes about. You know, how does a group with a lot of informal systems get things done? How do you make decisions? How do you prioritize where you spend your meager resources, what your collective voice looks like? Can you give us a little insight into that, how that works at Answer? Yeah. So at Answer, we function um, as a collective, as a very democratic uh, decision-making process is how we function. And um, what we like to say about ourselves is we're very scrappy and agile (laughs) Um, because we're not uh, a formalized 501c3 or anything. We're able to move with a little more flexibility. Um, And when it comes to making decisions, we are always prioritizing the folks who will be most impacted by said decisions um, at every step of the way. Uh, I would say we're pretty good at also, you know, making things happen and being can doers. <laughs> so yeah, we do collective decision making and we meet um, once a month, if not more. And a big thing about um, when we're making decisions is we're always any project we start or program we want to implement is always based in a community need that we have been told about or we know that exists, right? So it's folks coming from our own community and saying, hey, I want to do this thing because I want to address this issue or it would be really empowering to do this for me and my community. Um, that's that's how we function. So it's very, again, um, organic and the decision-making process very democratic. I feel like I'm hearing uh, about what happens when people are empowered in community. There's this generative experience. There's a lot of trust. There's a lot of sharing that might not happen with people outside the community with different lived experiences. I know I've, I've also heard you say that the process of decision-making as a group has sometimes been as important or even more important than advancing any particular outcome, particularly when you're trying to safeguard people who are on the margins. And I wanted to invite you to share a little bit more about that. Is that true? And what does that mean? And what does that look like to you? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely our, another big tenant of our work is process over outcome again and again. Um, So yeah, that looks like, for instance, you know, we've been able to secure some, some grant funding in the past year or two. And, um, you know, when we have these outside, you know, opportunities, it's wonderful, but we always have to be coming back to ourselves and why, why we're doing this work, right. And why we're supporting our community and in what ways that, how we want that to look. Um, and rather than, you know, oftentimes people in the nonprofit world, I myself having worked in it have experienced, um, that, you know, you get a grant or you set up a project and then suddenly it's all about, okay, we're timelines and outcomes and how many people are we going to reach and what are we going to be able to, you know, write about this or publish about this? Um, when in fact for us at answer and the more that I have just learned as an individual, but also as a collective in this work, um, is that, you know, it's not so much about the output or the outcome at the end of the day. It's more about the learning through the process and the relationships that we're building, um, with, with each other along the way and how those 
relationships and and other, you know, uh, community building efforts are going to outlast any sort of grant term or uh, project timeline, um, hopefully. At the end of the day, it's more uh, important how we are supporting each other. And we're doing that through working towards a common goal. Yes, for sure together. But um, in doing so, it's it's really about um, how we learn and grow from each other and support one another. That's an amazing lesson, I think, that many public health uh, professionals, including myself, could learn. Are there other things you think that public health officials could learn for you? Or how can our field support mutual aid groups like ANSWER? Mm, I would say the most important piece would be in supporting sex workers and um, groups that are doing mutual aid would be um, asking folks what they need and giving them money (laughs) to do said things that they need or resources, whatever that may look like, not necessarily money all the time. Um, And giving, um, again, it's really about uh, sovereignty and autonomy and how I think oftentimes we, when we're, again, focused on outcomes, I think we become narrow in how we want things to look. Um, and so then the, that's when we start attaching strings or, or neat or keeping things in a box all neat and tidy like, and the nature of humanity is not neat and tidy and, and things can look, um, you know, a little more colorful and like a watercolor just splaying out in all directions with all wonderful different colors. But in the end, um, trusting the process and that there will be a beautiful picture at the end, I think is, is what you can do the most. I think in the, in the public health sector would be trusting, listening, asking number one, what do folks need? Listening, truly listening, deep listening and, um, and trusting, trusting folks to uh, know what, they need for themselves and their communities. That that sounds very. We we we've been talking to a lot of experts and people with different experiences, and one of the things we hear is about uh, the importance of having leaders from communities that have been marginalized at decision making tables. Do you have any thoughts about how public health or policymaking officials can better do that? Yeah, I would say there's this whole imagery of like a seat at the table that became very popular (laughs) in conversation and society over the past couple of years. But I would go even a step further and say that, um, you know, folks who have decision making power or resources should be, you know, finding finding the table where the folks are already at and um, not, you know, not seeking it out in an exploitative way, but really like given the opportunity to build a relationship, meeting folks where they're at instead of inviting folks to join where you are. Um, so, you know, in, in that way and answer how we have done that it, within our own organization is, a lot through our outreach program. We go, we don't say, Hey, come pick up stuff from us at our location. It's let's go out and take it, take it out to the streets and meet people where they are. You're flipping the script. That's powerful. Uh, And, you know, you're, as you've mentioned several times, you're doing organizing in a community that's been pushed into the shadows and stigmatized. And, you know, yet you found this wellspring of, um, power and inspiration. I mean, where do you find your strength and inspiration to, to, mm. to keep going? 
I think doing this work with Answer has given me personally um, the opportunity to do a lot of reflecting on my own um, identity and sense of self and purpose. Um, you know, for me, being a, a white woman um, in indoor worker, um, I've had to face a lot of my own realizations around my own privilege um, ongoing, but I've also simultaneously been able to build a lot of beautiful, beautiful relationships um, with folks within my community who are also from very different backgrounds than myself. And I think being in connection is what it's really all about. I'll tell you what I'm hearing, which is so lovely, is about the impact of 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 lifting people up, you know, like you and your, you know, sisters and brothers are lifting people up and and giving them agency, and that's helping them make incredible difference in their own lives and the lives of people around them. In trusting, or you know, trusting the power of sex workers and taking the time to learn about us as people and our interests and our work. Trusting us to know what we need for ourselves. And also that when we trust people to um, and give them the resources that they are asking for or needing, they that like the options become limitless in and the work and what can come from just folks coming together is so empowering to the degree that like again whatever it may be that folks put their minds to or need to, you know, helping to uplift their community is going to have, definitely going to have an impact beyond that community alone. Um, that's true of, of uh, community work in general, but specifically with sex workers, I think because we are um, kind of left in the shadows, it's so important that we are given a voice, yes, but also given beyond voice, like the autonomy um, to make the decisions for ourselves and our own community. And in doing so, those decisions that we make will inevitably help folks beyond the sex working community. Hattie, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with Vital Strategies audience today to talk a little bit about mutual aid and um, and empowerment and the sex workers collaborative answer. Thanks again for taking the so time much, today. Steve. So, Steve, again, I really loved the conversation you had with each of these women, but maybe you could just let us know how you think they're connected and and. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 why they, you think they're important for us in public health? Yeah, I mean, I love these two interviews, and for me, this pairing really highlighted how, for the most part, public health happens outside of what we might think of as public health systems like surveillance and data collection, or immunization drives, or even community clinics. And if we recognize that public health means improving environments so that these healthy decisions that people making every day lead to longer and healthier lives. To me, listening to these two leaders together means challenging ourselves to think about how public health professionals or careers in public health operate from that lens. So, you know, Lily talked so much more about how can our profession work differently to support change in the world outside of traditional public health systems? And isn't that an obligation? And Hattie made me think about how we also have to understand really deeply these 
communities and approach them from a place of empowerment and from a, the assumption that these are able-bodied, even when they're marginalized communities, these are able-bodied people with ambitions and power and the ability to shape and change their own environments as well. Yeah, I I totally agree with your assessment. You know, Lily also sparked my thinking more about how we don't look at the root causes of public health problems, or we're so fixed on addressing the sort of top layer of the public health problem. And we don't dive into the issues that I think Human Impact Partners is thinking about all the time. Mm-hmm. Power hoarding, disparities, deep, what causes the disparities, poverty, racism. So it's that, I mean, if there's one thing I took away from the conversation with Lily and, and to some extent with Hattie, it's about power imbalances and how do you really try to reset the table so that there is more inclusion and more uh, ability to have voices heard about things that people are not thinking about in our public health uh, systems and, you know, just really important points of view that really um, need to be taken on board, I think, by a lot of us who are, you know, very concerned about even public health's ability to navigate in, in a world where we're thinking much more about equity and we're thinking much more about like how how to do that better uh, than we have in the past. Yeah, I mean, I, it was funny after I was having sort of a lunch table conversation with a colleague who was saying that um, you know disparities often end up uh, health disparities and and these kind of social determinants that you're talking about often end up in sort of the footnote of peer reviewed papers and in, in, you know with these sort of caveats like given that you know poverty and racism are driving the majority of the problem yeah. you know our intervention looked at something you know separate you know i think that you know broadly as a field we recognize these social determinants and then i don't know if it's um i think figuring out what has sort of disempowered us as a field and as a movement from thinking that we have the means and the Mm -hmm. obligation Mm -hmm. to address these drivers uh more potently is part of this next stage of public health, if we want to be more effective and more impactful, we we have to take that on. And I love that human impact um, and Lily are, that's their call. That's their call to to the whole field is, you know, like in her words, that that sort of public health analysis is incomplete if it doesn't look at power. And if we don't use a complete analysis, we're going to end up repeating the same old, uh, the same old inequities or, or at least not addressing them sufficiently. Right. And and also, you know, that's in a backdrop that we're all facing in public health or we're just facing around the world with, you know, political pushback and um, so many lines drawn between people's ideological beliefs. And, and how do we sort of, as public health people, really push forward despite all of the, the opposition and despite all of the, the skepticism? I've been thinking a lot about our sort of campaign, if you will, reimagining public health and how that's something that we want to both externalize and internalize. How do we get to the world to think differently about public health? And how do we really face and address some of the things that we haven't done that very well at all? Mm-hmm. And I loved your, I think it was in one of those conversations where you called out some of the, the early ways in which um, public health was much more interested in the social determinants and the social causes 
mind you, I think some of that was social control, but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> thinking about immigrants and and people of color and and so forth, but but there was a lot more interest in things like housing and the sort of poverty dimensions of thinking about Jacob Reese and the public housing situation in New York City in the turn of the last century. Um, but we've sort of moved away from that and we're really focused on just the sort of data around what our public health woes are rather than what the root causes of, mm-hmm. of those are. So, um, you know, I don't think we can have enough conversations about about this topic. Yeah. I mean, sort of in a similar vein, one of the things I loved about the interview with Hattie was that it challenged me to recognize, as I said earlier, sort of the ambitions and capability of sex workers. And, you know, sex workers tend to be portrayed as sort of desperate and incapable, um, you know, doing sex work as last resort. And I think we, even me as a public health professional, bring those assumptions into our idea of what's possible and, you know, for this community. And once you flip the script and start to see that even marginalized communities are very capable, have ambitions, have the power to make change, maybe we start to see public health professionals as sort of facilitators rather than architects, right? I think that our public health field is... We're sort of grounded in this medical model of doctors come in and they fix a problem. And maybe public health needs a different paradigm where, you know, communities can help themselves given the right condition. They can determine their own destiny. I think that's a movement that's happening quite a bit within our field and maybe more on the margins or you may have to look a little bit more deeply to find it. But this set of interviews, certainly with Lily, showed that. That, that there are people who are working to bring that, like a more, that kind of vision to life. Steve, I was really intrigued with your conversation with Hattie and thinking about empowerment of sex worker communities. And I'd love to hear you talk about how we are connected to her and the work that she does. So can you let listeners know about that? Sure. Answer Detroit is connected to our overdose prevention program. As you may know, sex workers are more prone to overdose and less likely to receive care and services when they do overdose or if they do use substances harmfully. Uh, So our program goes to where the community's at and sees harm reduction as a way of empowering people to use drugs less harmfully, and that makes them less likely to overdose, and that also impacts the people around them. So Answer Detroit has become a partner in helping us reduce overdose risk among this really... Maybe marginalized in, yeah. in some ways. Yeah. Community. Um, that, that It's terrific that they're working with us on that. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, one, one, I just want to say one other thing I appreciate about Hattie. At one point, Hattie talks about how, as a collective, they're value is to make sure that their actions benefit the most marginalized among them. So Hattie identifies Mm -hmm. as an indoor sex worker, uh, and she recognizes that there are outdoor trans sex workers who face much more difficult and, uh, and riskier situations in their lives. And I was just completely taken by the fact that, you know, this collaborative of mostly women, of sex workers who 
you know, most in society would think of them as people with that are not values driven. Yeah. Actually have this incredible values driven yeah. perspective on life and are living by it. And in fact, yeah. organizing around it for the benefit because they see their collective benefit of acknowledging that the most marginalized people have to be protected and the people with more privilege need to act on that. I found that just really incredible expression of what's possible. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And and made me really want to learn more and realize it's not an area that I know a lot about. Yeah. And again, it's another, maybe a blind spot in our own public health lens to the world. So thank you so much for having that really important conversation. Do you have any last thoughts, Steve, about any of the uh, conversations that you had before we wrap up? No, just I would say my last thought around the the arc of this year so far, we're about the, at the midpoint, and I've just been uh, reflecting on how many lessons we've kind of unearthed around what the future of public health should look like from, you know, bringing marginalized voices to the decision-making table, to South-to-South collaboration, to mm-hmm. changing how funding mechanisms work across multiple levels. So I'm excited for the next couple months of this journey. And, and maybe at some point in the future, Yumi and some other experts can take a moment to kind of reflect back on these six months of conversations and think about um, what can we tease out, you know, from across yeah. these many different perspectives and different issue areas and different environments and contexts. Thank you so much, Steve. Sandy, thank you. Um, it's been great, as always, digest these interviews. Listeners, we have more topics and guests, as Sandy said, coming to the Vital Talks podcast, um, including investigating pathways to leadership in public health, getting voices at the decision-making table, as I said earlier. And if you're interested in how global health can become more effective, if you enjoyed today's conversation, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also visit us at vitalstrategies.org, subscribe to our newsletter, uh, where you can get news, resources, insights tailored to your interests, like overdose prevention, urban health, environmental health, and much more. And if you have any feedback or thoughts, feel free to drop us a line at vitaltalks at vitalstrategies.org. For the moment, this is Steve Hamill. And Sandy Mullen. Signing off for the Vital Talks podcast.